Hi, Spark. It is so great to be with you all this afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being with us and finding space and time to continue to be Spark, continue to be church together. Thank you to our worship team for continuing to lead us, for all of you who've contributed in today's service. We are so grateful for the chance to be together. Our sermon today is entitled Jesus Heals, and we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be reading from Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. And as we kind of read through, as usual, we'll be stopping and talking about different points and then try to look forward a little bit as to what we might be able to see and understand and be encouraged through the study of this passage. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Jesus, thank you so much, Lord, for this chance to be together. Thank you for the opportunity to study and worship you through the study of your word. We ask, Jesus, right now that we would be drawn closer to you and closer to one another, and that we would be changed and moved by your presence and your leadership in our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right. Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. Here we go. Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. So let's stop right there. And remember that last week as Pastor Tom was teaching, we were in Nazareth, Jesus's hometown that he grew up in. And now Jesus is moving to Capernaum and Capernaum, actually, Kafar village, uh, Nahum, that not the same prophet, but another person by the same name, and that's the village of Nahum is, is the meaning of this word. Um, and so Jesus is going to move his sort of headquarters of operation to Capernaum. And this is a city, village, like a larger community section, a place of tax collecting as well, right on the Via Maris, that trade route that is going from north to south on the coast of the, the way of the sea there in Israel, and then cutting across the Jezreel Valley, and then taking a little right hook to the northwestern portion of the Sea of Galilee until it proceeds on towards Damascus. So as a result, uh, Rome is there, the centurions are there, and there's also this really beautiful, huge synagogue, one of the largest synagogues that's been excavated in the land of Israel, and has a large what looks like to be a school or additional room on the side. So Jesus here is sort of moving his headquarters from Nazareth, a, very, a much more modest village, to uh, the Harvard of his day, a, a large seat of rabbinic study and discussion, um, a large synagogue that's there, and it's quite impressive and, and beautiful. So that's there, and Jesus is going to now hang out by the shore of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum, which is right on the sea. It's stunning and beautiful. You have to come with us someday. So he's there and he's teaching on the Sabbath. So we know the Sabbath is the day of rest when everybody would be going to their local synagogue in order to study and to worship just as Jesus did in Nazareth um, when we were reading last week in Luke 4. So Jesus continues on, the gospel continues on in Luke 4.32. says that as he's teaching on the Sabbath that they are astounded at his teaching because he spoke with authority. We have this sort of concept of authority and amen. And I think a lot of us not knowing rabbinic context and first century Jewish culture, we kind of hear that and just go, he was like really forceful. He had great emphasis on the right syllable. I'm just joking. <laughs> um, as, he, as he taught and spoke. Um, but really this has more to do with a 
two things, a, a sort of rabbinic concept called smicha, which is authority. And when people in the community, particularly um, rabbis and leaders of the community, and this gets fully developed later on after Jesus, but there's sort of hints and precursors of it here, precursors of it, um, that Jesus is teaching with authority that has been passed down to him. And we can have a, a larger conversation about that at some point. Um, but many of the teachers of Jesus's day taught according to the traditions of the elders, sort of like this person says this and this person says this, and then we can debate and decide which one we want to follow. Um, they would quote other teachers locating their own teaching within the broader consensus of that community overall. But here, Jesus is making interpretations and pronouncements based on his own authority, who he stands, who he is and how he stands in the community, which is unique. They are sort of shocked, taken aback by that, that he's not locating his pronouncements within the context necessarily of other rabbinic teachers and is simply coming forward and saying, this is what we're going to do, or this is what I say. Um, that concept of authority is really going to push forward into our narrative here as we talk about Jesus and healings. So just hold that in your brain. Verse 33, in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. Let's stop right there. I want to note that the synagogue in Jesus's day isn't so much how we picture our own church buildings today, a place where you only went one day of a week to sing songs and to study and to be together. The synagogue in the first century in Israel functioned much more as a community center. Um, and so the stories here are telling us that also, not just was it functioning as a community center where people could gather, where um, decisions and judgments for the community could be made. If you had an issue with your neighbor, you could go there to have people assist and help and mediate all of those types of things. You could go for uh, a physical need. You could go because you were in need of charity or because you wanted to donate. The scrolls were kept there in the synagogue, as we remember from Pastor Tom's message last week. Jesus is handed that scroll by the synagogue servant by the Hazan, the keeper of those scrolls, um, and he's handed the one that has already been sort of pre-assigned for that day because they're in a reading for that three-year cycle. Um, so those things would all happen in the synagogue, but this story and these stories of Jesus and healing also tell us that the synagogues were not places where only healthy people or quote-unquote clean people were welcomed, um, but sick Disabled people are welcomed here. There seems to be no restriction on gender in the space or physical health or even ethnic identity as Romans and Roman centurions are there. And particularly the Roman centurion is in that space here. Um, as we know that uh, later on in one of our stories, we'll find out that um, this Roman centurion has helped to build this synagogue to finance it. Um, as you look at pictures of the synagogue in Capernaum of Jesus's day, you'll see that, um, yes, it's quite large and we have diagrams of what it would look like. The white stones that you see are from the fourth century AD or CE, um, so after the time of Jesus, but the foundation stones, the black basalt foundation stones that we can see in excavations that are located below um, the white structure are from the time of Jesus. So that gives us an idea of what the synagogue would have looked like during that time and again the size of it and how it functioned it was really an incredible place of education and communal life 
um, in that space. So again, people are not being restricted from the space based upon their physical ability or any physical disabilities. It does not seem that they're being kept out as a result of uh, gender or any other reason. Um, Luke does not mention issues of purity, however, like um, when there's a fear of disease or an issue of contagion or even personal revulsion at certain symptoms, um, that might be there, but he's not talking so much about purity. Um, the, the issues that prevent human contact for so many who are struggling with all of these other um, ailments or demon possessions at this time and all the ways that the gospel uses to describe this, um, in the midst of all of that, Jesus will constantly be demonstrating the importance of physical touch. He's going to talk about, you'll see through his actions and through his life that these physical ailments or any issues of purity or concern don't seem to inform Jesus's willingness or capacity of compassion and concern for those individuals. He reaches out, he touches, he engages, and continues to welcome these different members into the community at large. So let's go back to our text now. In verse 33, in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, let us alone, what have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So let's stop right there. The demons seem to know Jesus' identity. They know who he is, um, they know what he's doing, and they're calling that out in the midst of this presence. But the people do not yet know, and Jesus is going to now rebuke that demon and say, be silent and come out of him, come out of this man. Um, and it seems to be that the reason why Jesus is doing this is because he does not want the people to learn about his identity or his mission or his role and vocation and calling through the mouth of a demon. He wants them to learn about who he is and who he's called to be through his own actions and his own teachings. And I think that's quite a powerful insight. So Jesus rebukes him, says, be silent, come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down, thrown the man down before Jesus, he, the demon came out of him without having done him any harm, which is amazing, right? Um, I thank God not been <laughs> demonically possessed, but I can imagine at least from all of our movies that we have and things that we have culturally that sort of indicate to that, the, the acknowledgement here, or Luke's indication here that that this demon is able to come out without causing any additional harm for that person um, shows, again, Jesus's care for the individual and Luke's care and concern for the wholeness of this individual in this setting. These healings are fulfillments, at least in part, of that Isaiah prophecy that Jesus read um, when he was handed that scroll and said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing, right? Jesus is now setting captives free. He's explaining to everybody that he is not just preaching these words of Isaiah and saying, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing, but he's now going to live these out and demonstrate how the words of Isaiah are starting to be set into motion through Jesus's life and ministry. So let's proceed on in our reading here in Luke. When the demon had thrown him down before him, he came out of him without having done any harm. And verse 36, they were all amazed and kept saying to one another, what kind of utterance is this? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and out they come. And a report about him began to reach every place in the region. 
So remember again that as Jesus has done this and this authority and power that people are starting to observe in him, remember just a couple weeks ago, we talked about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness with the devil. And we remember that there Jesus rejected that offer of authority, that as Satan gives that author of authority in the wilderness, uh, this deliverance then, uh, as Jesus rejected that, now we see in this deliverance a reinforcement of Jesus's own authority. He already has authority over powers and principalities. And as he has that authority, he's going to now illustrate that and illustrate his own rule and reign in this world. So amazing and powerful as we continue to hear those echoes throughout this, this chapter. Verse 38, after leaving the synagogue, Jesus enters Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked him about her. Then he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. Immediately she got up and began to serve them. As the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various kinds of diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on each of them and cured them. Again, we're seeing that demonstration of Jesus' willingness to physically connect with those who are suffering and hurting and ill and sick. Um, verse 41, demons also came out of many shouting, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Messiah. All right, so let's talk a little bit about what we think is going on here and a few other things to note before we kind of move into our, our devotional moment of this afternoon. How is illness perceived in the ancient world? Well, you can kind of guess, right? Like today, physical sickness, mental illness, disabilities are often seen um, and become catalysts for judgment, rejection, emotional pain, guilt. Sickness was often wrongly attributed to sin. It was often seen as maybe a lack of faith. If you hadn't done something wrong, maybe you just didn't have enough faith um, to be able to see healing come into your life. We have similar situations today, don't we? Uh, theology is uh, challenging and painful. And so a lot of people in the ancient world, as well as today, continued to struggle with meaning and, try, and struggle with trying to understand the meaning behind wanting to ascribe meaning to a physical sickness, illness, or disability, um, or mental illness, right? So as uh, A.J. Levine and Ben Witherington mentioned in their commentary on the Gospel of Luke, how one in antiquity distinguishes among a miracle, medicine, or magic is often an act of perception. Same is true today, isn't it? What is a miracle to one person is magic or medicine to another. And one often helpful test is cost, right? Medicine and magic require payment, but free health care is a miracle. That's their nice fun joke. Um, but I think it's also true, right? Jesus is not asking for payment here. He's not asking for allegiance. He's not asking for promises of all sorts of other, whatever you could imagine. He is simply giving healings and deliverance as free gifts of his compassion and love and as a demonstration of his reign and rule in this world. Um, what might be perceived as a miracle by one might be perceived as magic by another or something demonic and an exorcism as Jesus will be um, accused of being, of being in cahoots somehow with the evil one. Um, there is all of those different connotations that we see in our gospel as, as well as we see today. And I think the thing that I would like to just recommend to all of us to hold in our minds as we consider the miraculous 
and healings and, and uh, challenges with, with illness and sickness and, and all of that in the world today, that where humanity lacks understanding or reason, it will create one. We are a species that wants to understand. We seek understanding. And when we don't have understanding, we will create narratives that give us some sort of capacity in this world to make sense of up and down and left and right. So in, in ancient times, like in the Middle Ages, they would say, oh, you've sneezed. It was a demon coming out of your body, right? So there's a, there's a trying to have some sort of explanation as to why things have happened. And we can hear those same things just being human responses in the Gospels as well as in our world today. What I think we want to pay attention to is that the stories of healings in the Gospels are often accompanied by a proclamation or demonstration of truth, right? These healings are demonstrating what we saw to be true in both the temptation narrative and the narrative of Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth, that Jesus is declaring who he is, that he's declaring himself as fulfilling those prophetic roles um, prophesied by Isaiah and the other prophets. He wants to demonstrate compassion. He wants to show validity for his teachings and proclamations as to who he is. One of the things we also note in these narratives is that Jesus doesn't just have authority to heal, but he, as we've noted, he has authority. Typically, as we've looked at other rabbinic texts from the first century and later, we see other rabbis and other sages and people of the elders of those periods to also occasionally, different people also had the gifts of healing. We've seen in our Hebrew text, Elijah and Elisha being able to pray for healing and others too. What's distinct about the person of Jesus is that Jesus does not pray to God and say, God, would you please heal this person? Jesus just declares the person set free. He, in his own authority, speaks the words and the miracle happens. And so in that respect, the healing ministry of Jesus is unparalleled in any of the other um, healing stories and narratives that we have from the first century before or after. Um, that Jesus is simply saying, really acting as God with that full authority, be healed, be set free, and that is happening. So it's really powerful. What else is happening in this narrative? Well, I want to note that in the Gospel of Luke, the first time that Luke will use the phrase kingdom or dominion of God is here in verse 43, right? Luke will use, though, this term over 31 different times with six additional references to the kingdom. And so when Luke uses this phrasing, we are pulled all the way back to Exodus when the Israelites have been set free from Egypt. And as they're crossing through the Red Sea and Miriam is singing that beautiful song, they themselves say, the Lord is reigning. The Lord reigns. The Lord is reigning forever and ever. And we start to have this glimpse of God working and functioning as king and his people being a royal priesthood, kings, sons and daughters of the king um, in this rule and reign. When then Jesus heals, we note that the kingdom, the rule and the reign of God is present. It is present when demons are driven out and when bodies are made whole. It indicates all of these healings and, and movements of Jesus in the space indicate this future realm where salvation from all that prevents human shalom, human wholeness and reconciliation 
all that prevents that, we are saved from that, and human wholeness and reconciliation prevail. Therefore, this remains work today that we continue to pray for and work towards too. Because we want to see, as we pray every single week, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. These echoes of rule and reign of God come from the Garden of Eden, come from the creation of the tabernacle at Mount Sinai, and that presence of God dwelling amongst the people. It comes from the filling of the presence of God into the Solomonic temple, right? All of these places where we can see pictures of God ruling and reigning amongst his people. And then in these settings, God saying, okay, only shalom and wholeness, even physical human wholeness can be present in these spaces because they are reflections and representations on earth as to what the kingdom of God looks like in the world to come as well, right? Bring your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So every time Jesus in full authority comes and says, be healed, be set free, come out of that individual, Jesus is pushing forward the rule and reign of God in this world and pushing forward this beautiful narrative. That's what we start to see through these healings, that the kingdom of, of Jesus, the kingdom of God is coming in full force when Jesus works that miracle of healing, that the rule and reign of God brings deliverance and displays divine sovereignty, that the kingdom of God is designed to bring that wholeness and that healing and that shalom to every area of our life. And that's why when Jesus says, if you see this, the kingdom of God is here. Right? God is now ruling and reigning, and you're getting a glimpse, a taste of what it looks like when God is fully in charge. And what that looks like is that people are set free, people are healed, and we see wholeness coming into the community. This is powerful and amazing. So the healings aren't just, let me put on a really beautiful, wonderful miracle for that individual, or let me speak into existence a miracle so that a whole bunch of people will believe in me or talk about me or be in awe of me. These miracles and these healings are helping us understand who Jesus is, why and how Jesus has authority in this world, how Jesus speaks that authority into being unlike anyone else, even with gifts of healing in his community, and how Jesus starts to bring forth that kingdom of God, that rule and reign of God in this world and in the world to come. So the kingdom of God, the grace of God, the compassion of God comes in full force in these moments of healing. We start to see reconciliation. We start to see wholeness. Does this happen today? I'm going to say yes. I think Jesus still heals today. I think that as we look at this, though, we'll note that many of us are frustrated with our prayers that go unanswered. If we've lived a portion of life, just a little bit of a moment, we've seen our prayers go unanswered the way that we want. We've seen good people, young people, loved ones pass away far too young. Um, we've seen that in our nation just this week. We've seen that happen as a result of disease. We've seen that happen as a result of brokenness, of mental illness, of, of depression. We've seen, we've seen such loss 
through all of these different aspects. We've seen it, seen it through aspects of violence too. And so a lot of times when we pray for healing, as we're looking for that miracle, we're looking for that big, amazing event that we could put on display for the world that would claim and proclaim the rule and the reign of Jesus in our lives and in the, rule, in the world around us. We want that big, huge, wonderful event. But we're frustrated because oftentimes when we pray, we don't see that happen. I know um, in my own personal life and as a pastor, there have been so many prayers that we have prayed for healing for people that we dearly loved, and we've not seen that healing come this side of heaven. And there's been some really bad theology created around this, right? There's either been, well, it didn't happen because you didn't pray in the right way, or you didn't have the right people praying, or maybe that healing didn't happen because you didn't have enough faith, um, or maybe God just really, you know, somehow we try to explain, again, where humanity does not have an answer, we'll create one. So we'll say, well, maybe God really wanted to put God's, like, mercy on display or truth on display. So we were going to have this massive funeral for this individual. And then the, the gospel, the proclamation, the proclamation of the gospel go out and people would be saved. And so that's why this had to happen because maybe they wouldn't be saved other way. All of that actually falls very flat for me. I'm sorry. I, if I, if I have a loved one that has passed away and somebody has come through faith in Christ through their funeral, I am grateful for that good thing that came out of the bad thing. But if God came to me and said, I had to take your loved one away in order for that other person to be saved, I'd say, find another way. Invite him to a really great camp or retreat. Like, find another way, God. Right? This, it, there's nothing satisfying in that answer for me. What is satisfying for me in these moments of difficulty and sickness and pain is the belief that Jesus is with us, that Jesus has compassion for those who are hurting, for those who love those that are hurting and sick. I believe that Jesus weeps with us, that Jesus enters into these moments and places of pain, and that he does not leave us alone in them. And I believe he'll bring good from them. I think all of this, for me, at various points, just lands in this great quote by N.T. Wright, a tectonic plate's going to do what a tectonic plate's going to do. And what that simply means is that earthquakes happen, tectonic plates move, and when they move, this world that we live in, which is not perfect and is not fully representative of the intention and rule and reign of God in this world, it is not the Garden of Eden. We got booted out of that a long time ago, and we keep trying to reach back towards it and reach towards the one that we see in the, in the book of Revelation, where there's no more tears and no more crying and no more pain. I kind of just look at the world as like, things happen, things are broken, people are sick, people die far too young, cancer sucks, all of these things happen, and sometimes, every once in a while, we see a miracle. We see a, like, bona fide, genuine, crazy miracle. And when those happen, we're thrilled. And most of the time, we see God be with us in the pain and the suffering and the illness and the hurt. And we see Jesus sitting with us, crying with us, having compassion towards us, towards those who are hurting, and teaching us how to do those same things. And in those places then, we start to see healing. We trust that we'll see the full healing on the other side in heaven, right? And we'll see glimpses of that healing today. 
I think too, because we love the miracle and we want that dramatic moment and we want to be set free from these diseases, we often neglect to notice the smaller but just as miraculous healings that are happening in our midst all the time. We neglect to see the hard heart that gets softened towards issues of racial injustice. We neglect to celebrate as miraculous the movement of isolation and loneliness into community and wholeness when somebody finds the family of God. We neglect to celebrate the massive ways in which spiritual wholeness and healing comes through the meeting of Jesus. We don't always measure, unless it's huge and dramatic, the very small ways in which dysfunctions, or very huge ways, and dysfunctions are being addressed within marriages and family systems. We can start to look for the divine miracles and sparks all around us when we change and reframe a bit of our awareness to starting to give Jesus credit for all the good stuff that we see, that we start to say thank you to the scientists and the physicians and the nurses who bring healing through science, through medicine, and we give God all the glory and all the credit for that, that through the work of therapy and mental health work and all of that we start to see pushes towards shalom and wholeness through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, through the indwelling of Christ in our hearts, through the community that we are given in our church and in our family of God. My prayer is that we will all continue to lean into the very good news that was pronounced 2,000 years ago, Jesus heals, and that we'll lean into the truth of finding the very big ways and continuing to pray for the very big ways and the dramatic ways for which Jesus heals in our world, as well as the small ways that are less celebrated and seen and understood, that we'll start to notice, ask Jesus to give us eyes for how we are starting to ourselves be changed or start to notice that wholeness and shalom come into this world too. I know Jesus has healed me. Jesus has healed me from egotism and arrogance and moved into a place, I'm still working on it everybody, but moved into a place where it's just so beautiful just to be part of the family of God. Jesus has moved us all from, from places of brokenness to wholeness. And I'm grateful for the ways in which he's healed me um, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through intentionality, through spiritual disciplines and hard work, through, through great therapists, through great spiritual leaders and directions, through study of the word, um, through Spark, through the Spark community, um, through a healthy church that loves and pursues the way of Jesus and justice in this world and love, um, all those big and small ways. So church, today, as we now together come to the table I want us to remember that Jesus heals and that Jesus is reigning. And as we continue to pray, your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. Let's do so with hope and anticipation for both the big and the small miracles in our daily lives. And one miracle that I feel every single week here at Spark is that we're part of a church that welcomes everyone to the table. 
that we are trying to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, where all are welcome to this beautiful table, this communion table of Jesus. We get to commune together with one another and with Christ. And with the community of Jesus from 2,000 years ago, as well as the community of Jesus that is still to come. So grab your elements, your bread and your juice or wine, and join us together as we remember the Lord's words 2,000 years ago. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed, and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this miraculous healing table.